The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from John 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You may be seated. Family, how are we doing? Good, good to see you. If we haven't met before, my name is Garrison. I'm an elder candidate here. Excited for tonight. We're starting a new uh, mini-series. Uh, we're calling it The Greatest Hits. Essentially, uh, we're taking four weeks, uh, bringing in leaders both uh, in our church, from other churches, uh, for them to essentially preach their, their greatest hits, things that uh, they've been learning, things that God has been showing them in his word. Uh, we've also uh, been doing two series to, to start the year, um, and we've also got a longer series uh, that'll take us through the whole summer that we're rolling out in May. Uh, so we thought it'd be helpful and fun to kind of clear out some space and just do some one-off standalone type stuff. Plus Tim's on paternity leave, and we thought this would be a great time for a mutiny. You can cut that from the audio. Um, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 3, uh, so if you've got a Bible, you can open up there. We're going to be looking at uh, a famous uh, interaction that Jesus has in the Gospels. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father God, we're thankful to get together. Um, together, thank you for the Gospel. Thank you for making us family, and we get to do this um, yeah, God, this is a very convicting passage for me, and just uh, seeing, God, that the way we enter into your kingdom is not by what we do, what we've done, or will do, but by grace. Pray, God, that you would uh, help us see where we struggle to see that, and move in us, that we would repent um, and move towards you, your grace. Pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
Uh, So over the past month leading up to Easter, we did a series called The Story of God, where we kind of were just looking at macro level. This is how the gospel uh, lays out, how you can see it throughout the Bible. So we started with creation, that God creates the world. It's perfect, doesn't last long, that uh, Adam and Eve fall into sin, and that the world is broken. But we know that Jesus comes, redeems uh, the world. This is what we were celebrating last weekend. And ultimately, uh, now that he is risen, uh, we're waiting for his return for him to consummate his kingdom forever. We said that this is the better meta-narrative, the better story for us to live out of. But if we know it's the better meta-narrative, we have to ask, why do we have such a hard time believing it? Not just us, but culture, society, like people tend to not be Christians. Like we're not the majority, if you think that way and feel it. Also for us as followers of Jesus, why, why do we have such a hard time believing it or living it out? Now, there's a lot of reasons that we struggle with this, that we reject the gospel. There's a lot of complexities, but I think two helpful overarching categories are really just this. One, we or people believe that we're too good for the gospel. We believe that we're too good for the gospel. Or we believe that we're too bad for the gospel. I think if you uh, look at different interactions that Jesus has in in the Gospels, I think uh, if you have certain experiences, I know I do, both in ministry and in life, these tend to be the two major resistances to why you would become a Christian, why you would embrace Christ. This is true for Christians and non-Christians, and I think we can identify with, with both of these. Right, You can see yourself maybe leaning towards other, but it's, we can see ourselves as both. And Jesus himself, he, he tells stories about these two categories of people, but he also deals with him in his life. So that's what we're going to be doing this week and next, is looking at how Jesus interacts with people who believe they're both too good and too bad. So tonight we're going to start with the too good. We'll look at the gospel for the too good. So open up a Bible to John 3. We'll see how Jesus deals with the too good. We'll be in verse 1. Can follow along behind me or read in your Bible. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this is the start of a very famous interaction that Jesus has in the Gospels. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the Jewish leader, coming to him at night. So uh, before we get too far in the story and unpack what's going on here, we got to know who this dude is. Who is Nicodemus? So uh, we actually learn a good bit about him just from these first verses. So one, he's culturally elite, he's intellectually elite, and he's spiritually elite. I'll show you what I mean. One, he's an older man. He's an older Pharisee. He's, a, he's called a leader. Uh, in his culture, people tended to, tended to defer to older men. Also, being a Pharisee, uh, he's a religious leader, but, but not just that. The Pharisees, and we've talked about this before in older sermons, they had the whole Old Testament memorized. Like, he knew more about the Bible than we will ever know or start to know. He's, he's got it down. But not just that. He knew every single of the 613 commandments specifically that are in the Old Testament. I can name like 11. Not only that, they took it further. It wasn't just head knowledge. They took morality incredibly seriously, at least outwardly. So not only did they know and follow all 613, the Pharisees actually built out more rules around the rules. So I I heard someone talk about it. If the rule for the Pharisees was don't drink milk from the cow, They would say, if you look at the cup that the milk is in, you're in sin. If you go near the barn, you're in sin. So they're building this framework 
around these rules that would protect their righteousness even more and they would make others to do the same. So they were thought of as incredibly moral. So they knew a lot. They were highly thought of. They looked great on the outside. But he's actually more than that too. It says he's a ruler of the Jews. So he's like a, a special Pharisee. He's a, a part of the Sanhedrin, which was a, a ruling council of 20 to 70 men, depending on the area, who were leaders that formed this council that oversaw uh, religious teachings, uh, politics at times, education, legislation. All of that to say, if you want to know who Nicodemus is, he's the establishment. He's the man. He's the religious authority. And he's coming to Jesus to check him out. So Jesus is getting a following at this point. Right? He's, he's teaching, he's healing, and this guy's showing up to be like, are you legit? Who are you? And he seems to be affirming him, right? He seems to say, God must be with you, Jesus. Let's see how Jesus responds to him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Seems like they're missing each other here. So Nicodemus shows up and he says, hey, seems like God's with you. Seems like there's some stuff going on. It really seems great. Like me and the Pharisees, like, we're, we're, yeah, you're legit, right? And Jesus kind of responds like, you wouldn't be able to know that. You wouldn't be able to see that. You must be born again to even be able to realize that and enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is a little bit thrown off. It's like, huh? What do you mean by that? It just goes right over his head. Let's see what happens next. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So again, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's not just talking about physical new birth, which is what Nicodemus is getting caught up on. He's talking about spiritual new birth. So the phrase born again in the Greek is genio anothen, which can literally mean physical new birth, but it has a dual meaning. It also means a birth from above. So he's saying, yes, you have to be born again but it comes from above. And then he compares it to the wind. You, you can't understand this. It's mysterious. Look back and see if Nicodemus finally gets it. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Still not there. He's like, what? What are you talking about? I'm an old man. I can't be bored again. It's not clicking for him. Let's see where Jesus finally takes him. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, not, you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Finish out in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So I imagine very graciously Jesus looks at him and says, aren't you supposed to be the religious leader here? <laughs> aren't you supposed to be the expert in what I'm talking about? You don't get it. Now, we'll get to why that is, but before we keep going, we've got to answer some questions. So first, we've got to know why he's there. Why is Nicodemus there? 
So he's a Pharisee. And if you've spent any time in the Gospels, you know that the Pharisees and Jesus don't really click. They're not buddies. So why is he there asking these questions? Why is he talking to him in private? Uh, it's hard to know, but uh, there tends to be a little bit of a detail that we get here that we can glean from. One, he's there at night. He's there at night. And he's there in private. Now, night tends to be biblically associated with sneakiness or spiritual darkness. So we got to ask, why are you sneaking around, Nicodemus? What are you doing? So according to uh, most biblical scholars, there's really two options. One uh, is that he's legitimately interested in Jesus. He's there spiritually seeking. He's interested. He's open to what Jesus is talking about, what he's bringing. But he's embarrassed. He's embarrassed because his Pharisee buddies are not too fond of Jesus. So he's coming at night out of fear or secrecy. That's the first option. Second option is that as part of the Sanhedrin, their, their job was to investigate anybody that claimed to be a teacher. And part of the job was to see if the teaching was, um, was kosher, if you're tracking. And they took this job really seriously. And you could thank you. And they could literally, and uh, they would literally put somebody to death if they were a false teacher. So in this option, Nicodemus is investigating Jesus as part of his job, regardless of which one you land on. What we kind of get here is that Nicodemus is putting him on a trial, whether it's for himself or whether it's for the Pharisees, for the Sanhedrin. He wants to know, are you legit? I've got the knowledge and I'm coming to you to figure out if you're right. I'm the judge. And Jesus just completely flips it. He's like, you do not have the categories that you need to have to be able to know. Jesus pointed the whole time in order to be able to see what you think you can see, you have to be born again. You have to have spiritual new birth. And that's the second question. What does that mean? What is spiritual new birth? Um, it's a little bit of strange language, depending on your church background, but really, basically, it's just the way that Jesus talks about salvation. It's talked about a good bit in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it clearly. I'll just read it for you. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. So in Christ, we've become new creations. The old passes away, the old ways of life, the old ways of thinking, and we're renewed by the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus might be missing it because that's a new category, right? That's new information. But he's not just missing it because it's new information. Because there's an implication with being born again, with spiritual new birth. The implication is that you would need it that you would have a need for it. To hear that you have to be born again would imply that you're sinful, that you are moral, that you need a fresh start, so to speak. Why would that apply to him? Jesus saying a man needs to be reborn isn't going to click with that guy because he's got all the commands memorized. Literally, if somebody was asking, uh, hey, what does a godly person look like in this culture? They would just point to Nicodemus. They would just say that, him, the guy that does all of the rules all of the time, that teaches the Bible. He teaches the Old Testament. He knows all of it, knows all the rules, and he's following the extra rules. Imagine, if that's you, what that would do to you. If your whole life you've been dedicated to following the rules perfectly, it'll get you to the place where you would wonder, why would I need to be spiritually reborn? Why would he need to start over? He's done a great job, and that's exactly his issue. Nicodemus' issue is that he thinks he's too good for the gospel. He thinks he's too good for the gospel. In other words, his problem is his works righteousness. His works-based righteousness. That's the theological term. Or in more common language, he thinks he's a good person on his own. He's self-righteous. 
He, he thinks he's good because of his position, because of his background, because of his deeds and record. So why would he need to be born again? So to Nicodemus, his sin is under control. There's no need for rebirth. He's squeaky clean on the surface. But in the midst of all of his religious goodness lies his problem. He thinks he has no need for Jesus. Now, there's a, there's a good bit of that in, in all of us. We've all, we've all got a little bit of Nicodemus. It could, it could be uh, small things. It could be big things. It could be conscious or unconscious. Um, I think a, a really helpful picture of thinking you're too good or having a, a works-based righteousness is kind of this idea of building a, a spiritual resume. So uh, I don't know about you. When I, when I was growing up, my, my dad would always, and other people, would just be like, you got to always be preparing your resume, always updating it, always thinking through, you know, uh, what, what's the next job? How do we look good? Or how do we look good on paper? So when you're doing that, you're essentially asking, what makes me attractive to employers? What makes me look good on paper? What makes me right for the job? And that's not always a bad thing. But it's a devastating thing is if it's what you're doing spiritually. Because you're not just asking, how do I look good for the job? You're asking, what makes me right with God? And for the Pharisees, it's clear. Be perfect. Follow the rules perfectly. Another way to talk about it is just what makes me a good person? What makes me valuable? What makes me worth it? What makes me, uh, what makes me contribute in a way that I make the world a better place? Whatever. That's the secular way of talking about it. You can see it everywhere. So this, this all might sound very obvious and ridiculous, but there's plenty of ways that people shop their spiritual or moral resume. It, it doesn't have to involve church. It could be things like, I'm a nice person. I try to be kind. I care about social issues. I shop at Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, and I bring my own bags. And I recycle. I care about animals, whatever. It could be the church way, the religious way. We all know that when I go to church, I tithe. I'm a good person. I listen to Christian Spotify 75% of my car rides. I have some scriptures posted in prominent places in my house. I like blog, I, you know, put my favorite Christian bloggers stuff on my Instagram three times a week. So, you know, I'm growing, I'm reading. And I know that sounds silly and, and maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not why you would do those things. But there's smaller hidden ways that we can do this. Maybe we're not as aware of that. We, we're not as conscious of them. So here's, here's a couple symptoms of thinking you're too good for the gospel. One is image management. Image management, maintaining your image. So I, I would say this plays out in a couple different ways, but one for us, I see it myself, is if you're in a group, do you like confessing your sin when you haven't figured it out yet? <laughs> like, do you want to go into group having it all tied up in a bow? Like, yeah, this week I looked at porn and I lashed out at my kids or spouse, and I was really anxious the whole week about whatever, about money, about the future. But, you know, I prayed about it and I did these four other things, so now I'm ready to talk about it. That's image management. If that's your goal, if you, uh, here's how you know it. it. Do you talk about it if you haven't done the four things? Because if not, that's a dead giveaway. Uh, the second is pride. Pride, and this might sound kind of similar to maintaining your image. It's a little bit uh, the same. Well, we find pride in how mature we appear or how mature we think we are, how experienced and good at something we are. Um, I don't know if you've felt this before. Um, you're sitting in a gathering like this, or you're at group, 
and there's a sermon being preached or somebody speaking into your life, maybe, maybe a spouse or your friends, and they're, they're pushing into you. And in, you know, in the moment, you're like, that's really good. But in the back of your mind, you're like, I already knew that. I kind of got that one already. And you kind of take a little bit further, and you're like, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of aware of that. Actually, it's, it's this, and you missed it. Take pride in it. I got it figured out. I'm beyond the basics. That's another giveaway. Some of us are literally just Pharisees. We're rule followers. We're just rule followers. And there's a fine line, right? So we, we want to follow the rules for the right reasons in light of the gospel. But for some of us, we follow the rules because it gives us a one-up. makes us feel better. And we're really internally harsh about morality and rule following. And whenever somebody else does the wrong thing, we cannot wait to kind of ring the bell. And they'll be like, they're wrong. And we, we maybe even confuse ourselves or trick ourselves that it's like kindness, like we just want to help. But the way we go about it, <laughs> we're just Pharisees. Uh, a last one is just performance. And this is the biggest one for me. Is just, uh, it is very easy for me to determine uh, my relationship with God, how God views me, how I view God based off of how I was doing that day or the week. Just how much time did I spend with God? How was the quality of that time? Did I say the right thing at group? Uh, did, I, did I worship well enough? Whatever. Did I share the gospel this week? If I didn't, then God is not happy with me. If I did, then it's a great week. All of those are dead giveaways of thinking you're too good for the gospel. And all of them lead to different breakdowns. All of them lead to breakdowns. One, spiritual exhaustion. You just feel like you're constantly having to do more and more. You're self-reliant. You can't be vulnerable. You can't be open. You can't invite other people in. And the scariest part is a lot of times modern-day Pharisees don't even know it. They're not aware of it. But when you judge others, when you maintain your image, when you feel like you've got to perform for God, the core is the same. What makes me right with God and others and myself is my goodness. What makes me right with God and others is my goodness. And the issue, the problem is that it's not going to work. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, is it's not going to work. I heard uh, someone talk about it this way, comparing uh, works righteousness to... Uh, it's like tying a mouse to an 18-wheeler that's stuck in a ditch and believing that the mouse can get it out by just trying hard enough and just whipping the mouse saying, you could do better. The mouse cannot get out of the ditch with the 18-wheeler, but it will kill you trying. The truth is, uh, for those of us that actually deal with this, we're exhausted, we're tired, we're frustrated, and the root of it all is just that we must be born again. It's both the entrance to the kingdom of God and what sustains us. Jesus says it won't work any other way. It's not possible. And what Jesus does next is a little interesting. He makes this very kind of obscure reference to this odd story in the Old Testament that shows us what it means to be born again. So look back at verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
So this, this little reference to Moses in the wilderness um, is a short story I'm sure we all know, Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Y'all got that one? Yeah, not the thing that you get tattooed. Um, it's a little, it's a weird short story. It's six verses long. Um, it's essentially the Israelites doing what they do best. They're complaining. Uh, they're whining that God, you know, we, sh- we should have just been left in Egypt. It would have been better. And they go to Moses and they're complaining. And God, um, he does something a uh, little, little strange. He sends snakes into the camp and just unleashes these snakes which is many of our phobias, like planet Earth 2, just snakes coming everywhere. And they all get bitten, and they're just riling about in the middle of the wilderness, dying. And Moses goes to God, and he says, can we fix the problem? Like, please do something. And God says, fashion a bronze serpent, and hold it up, and whoever looks will live. And that's it. That's the end of the story. It's like never mentioned again until now. If I'm being honest, it's a little bit odd. It's like really quick. It's out of nowhere. It honestly feels too simple. And I think that's why he's using it on Nicodemus. Because the story paints a picture of humanity's real condition spiritually. It sounds corny, but we're snake bit with sin. We're snake bit with sin riling about in the dust. We're fallen. It's just like we talked about a couple weeks ago. We are broken We're not as we should be because of sin. And just like Nicodemus, this is being brought up because no matter how many times you're told that, we'll think it applies to somebody else and not us. And this is the story that Jesus is using on the religious guy for a reason, because I got to believe that Nicodemus would have heard this, this reference and thought, I'm not the Israelites. That's not me in the story. I wouldn't have been complaining. I wouldn't have been bit. I'm more like Moses. And Jesus is saying, no, it is you, Nicodemus. You're riling about in the dirt. You're snake bit with sin, and there's nothing you can do about it in your own. You're not Moses. You're the Israelites. That's the message for him and for us. We're helpless. There's nothing we can do about it. We're not too good. There's nothing we could do because ultimately, there's a toxin coursing through your veins, and it's sin. So for, for Nicodemus, regardless of his outward appearance and what he does and his position, his morality, his sin is killing him. And to Nicodemus, sin was just this outward thing, right? Was, that could be cleaned up with just enough rules. And the problem is, I think we do the same thing. Tim Keller talks about it this way. He says, nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most prolific and moral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge. We must learn, to learn how to repent of the sin under all our other sins and under all our righteousness. The sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. We must admit we've put our ultimate hope and trust in things other than God. And get this, in both our wrongdoing and our right doing, we have been seeking to get around God or get control of God in order to get a hold of these things. Here's what we tend to believe when we think we're too good for the gospel I'm my own Savior, I'm my own Lord. And if you're wondering why you do it, we do it because if you're, if you're your own savior, 
It means your relationship with God and other people are on your terms. You don't have to be vulnerable. You don't have to owe anyone anything, and you have the upper hand. So you get to be the hero, you get to look good, and God and other people, they owe you and have to defer to you and be happy with you. That's the real nature of works righteousness. That's what it is if you boil it down. That's why it's sneaky, because it's not about the bad things we do. It's about everything we do. It's about the good, about the right things we do that the scriptures would say are filthy rags. And Jesus says, no, you've missed it. It doesn't work, and it won't work. It can't. That's why Jesus points him to Numbers 21, where God's people are in trouble. They're going to die. But God, being rich in mercy, sees his people in a desperate condition. And knowing what he was going to do the whole time, he tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent, to lift it up, and anyone that can look at it will be healed. Gives us this picture, right, of the people riling about in the dust, just trying to get an eye on this serpent, that they would be healed. That's what Jesus compares himself to. Look back at verse 14. It says, So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus, like this bronze snake, would be lifted up on a pole, that anyone that looked at him would be healed, saved, made right. We can't fix ourselves. It won't work. doesn't matter if it's, a, if it's you trying to save yourself, trying to sanctify yourself. It won't work. Jesus lived the life we never could. He died the death we deserved, and all we have to do to be born again, to be made right with him, is to look. Just to look. That's how we're born again, through no works of our own, but instead repenting of our own self-righteousness, of our belief that we're too good and can be good by looking at the Son of Man who is lifted up in our place. Uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, in order to be born again, you've got to look. That's the only thing it requires. So I, I think I personally find Numbers 21 odd because I think there should be more. I think the Israelites should like build the craziest altar ever and like burn a bunch of sacrifices and that's the story. But that's not it. They just had to look. It's not about them. It's about God. To look requires an act of repentance. It's very ironic because we want to do and perform and Jesus says, you have to look. You have to look. In order to look, you have to reject your own spiritual resume. You have to put it down in order to actually uh, take on to accept Jesus' perfect resume given in our place. You, we have to repent of trying to ascend to heaven like Jesus talks about and accept that he descended for us. doesn't matter how good you are. doesn't matter how good you think you are. How many times you come to church, how involved you are, how much you serve. doesn't matter how you've encouraged people in the last week. If you did the best engage the heart thing ever and the whole group had a revival, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're the most on-mission, missional person. It doesn't matter if you've been doing this for a while and you're even hearing this thinking, yeah, I know, this is what it takes to be saved. No, this is what it takes to be saved and to stay in him. You have to keep looking. You're not good enough on your own, and you won't be. Trying to be too good for the gospel is an attempt to make ourselves right with God and others in our, on our own. It won't work because we are snake bit with sin. We are riling about in the dust. Even when you're trying to do everything right, that is who you are. We needed the Son of God to be lifted up, to be snake bit in our place. Look on him. 
And if, you, if it's the first time, if this is the first time you've ever heard something like this, I invite you to look at him. He went to the cross for you. If this is the hundred thousandth time, when you think that uh, the way that you are sanctified and stay in him is by actually getting your act together, that's not it either. This is what separates Christianity from everything else. Every other meta-narrative, every other story, every other way of life says you got to work, work, be good, be better, be nice, be kind, care more. And Jesus says, just look, just accept my resume. Christianity says, stop trying to work and accept grace. That's what we uh, celebrate every week when we come here, when we worship, when we take communion. So uh, take your cup. We've got a little thing of, of juice and a little, little bread on your seat. Um, every week we, we celebrate that this is what the gospel is, that it, that it isn't our body that was broken. It isn't our blood that was spilt. It was Jesus's. That's true for us now. That's true if you've been a Christian for years. This is what sustains you. This is what enters you into the kingdom of God. If you're not a Christian, this is the one thing we would invite you not to do because you'd be saying something about yourself that's not true. Instead, we'd invite you to take Christ for the first time. We'd love to talk to you about it. We'll have some people in the back that would love to pray for you. I'll be down front to talk about it afterwards. But for those of us in Christ, you can take the bread and eat. Same thing, you can take the juice just Jesus' blood shed for us. Take and drink. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, we confess joyfully that we know we can't save ourselves. We, we confess that we've tried, that there's a lot of us that attempt to be good enough on our own to work our way to you, Jesus, but you said you descended from heaven. We attempt to ascend on our own, but it can't work. And God, that's great news for us. Some of us are, are exhausted. We're tired. Maybe we, we trusted in the hope of the gospel and, and the grace of the cross at one time, but we've, we've sort of drifted from it into trying to work it out on our own. God, we thank you that all that's required is to look, to remember that it is you. It isn't us. We thank you for the freedom that that brings, Lord. Thank you for the kindness um, of, and your love for us. God, I pray that you would, uh, you would help us to repent, Lord. God, we, we want to be our own Savior and our Lord. It's very appealing to us. I know it's appealing to me. God, change our hearts. We can't do it on our own. We need you. Thank you that you're faithful to do it. Pray it all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.